Hello, my name is Erin Feldman, and I am a clinical leader with Iowa City Hospice. I'm here to speak to you today about hospice care for the geriatric lecture series. I'm a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Iowa and an advanced certified hospice and palliative care social worker from the National Hospice and Palliative Care Association and NASW. My entire professional career has been in hospice care, several years spent at the bedside as a clinical social worker, and other years spent as a clinical leader supervising psychosocial staff in hospice. Disclosure statement for this presentation, I have nothing to disclose. There are many objectives that I'd like to cover today. Uh, first one is reviewing the hospice philosophy and principles of care. I will state the coverage and eligibility requirements for hospice, including prognostication guidelines. I'd like to dispel myths of the hospice benefit, introduce the hospice interdisciplinary team, review certification and discharge processes, discuss levels of care available to patients, and describe the benefits of hospice in nursing homes. Next, I'd like to share with you several statistics from the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. A 2009 study estimated that approximately 41.6% of all deaths in the United States were under the care of a hospice program. A 2010 study told us that the median length of hospice service was only 19.7 days, meaning that half of the patients receiving hospice care have care less than three weeks. A 2007 study, also by NHPCO, showed that patients who chose hospice care lived an average of one month longer than similar patients without hospice. This dispels a common myth that when a patient elects hospice care that their life expectancy would be shorter. The hospice philosophy is multifaceted. Hospice is designed to provide compassionate, comprehensive, and coordinated care to individuals with a life-limiting illness or injury and their families. Hospice is the belief that everyone has the right to live and to die pain-free, focusing on the management of symptoms so individuals may have dignity, comfort, and quality. And lastly, hospice affirms life by neither hastening or postponing death, recognizing that death is a natural part of life. Hospice programs carry out the philosophies of care through several principles. The first is to treat the whole person, not simply the disease, taking into consideration body, mind, and soul of each individual. Hospice programs do this with the use of an interdisciplinary team as the model of care. Later in the presentation, we will go through each interdisciplinary team member and their role on the team. Another principle is that hospice considers the family as the unit of care, not just providing care to the patient alone. 
Hospice also treats symptoms in the least invasive manner. An example is with medications. If a medication is needed, uh, hospice programs would typically first look at a route by mouth versus an intravenous route. In order to be eligible for hospice care, the primary care physician and the hospice medical director must certify that the medical prognosis is six months or less if the illness runs its normal course. Recognizing that none of us have a crystal ball, it is the expectation that these two physicians make their best educated guess as to life expectancy given the disease progress. A patient elects a treatment course of aggressive comfort versus aggressive curative measures. I emphasize the aggressive comfort here because many times, again, when a patient is offered hospice services, they immediately have a response of, of hesitation or denial or disbelief. And many times the presentation, uh, and a wrong presentation, is one of uh, giving up, nothing else we can do. Hospice uh, would rather have a presentation of simply a movement from an aggressive curative treatment plan of care to a treatment plan of care of aggressive comfort. The last bullet point for eligibility is that the patient or substitute decision maker, if the patient is unable to make their own decisions, consent to receiving services. Hospice services cannot be given to a patient if that patient does not consent to them. Coverage of hospice. Medicare, Medicaid, and most commercial payers have a hospice benefit. Medicare and Medicaid typically cover services at 100% with a limited out-of-pocket cost for the patient and family. Commercial payers are subject to annual deductibles, out-of-pockets, and co-pays as with other health care provided. Many hospice programs also provide indigent care for those who do not have any type of insurance coverage. What is covered? Services reasonable and necessary for the palliation or management of the terminal illness, as well as related conditions. These services include, up to and not limited to, durable medical equipment, medical supplies, medications, and the professional disciplines we will review later for the care of the patient. The related conditions refer to secondary conditions that may be caused by the hospice diagnosis. These are not to be confused with comorbid conditions. The Medicare regulations limit that to secondary conditions. Services also covered must be consistent with the plan of care. Hospice programs establish a plan of care based on the individual's diagnosis, prognosis, and goals of care. There are several myths to hospice care. 
First one being that a patient must be a do not resuscitate when admitted into a hospice program. This is false. While conversations about end-of-life wishes and end-of-life care are of the utmost importance when someone is battling a terminal condition, it is not a Medicare requirement for a patient to be a DNR when admitted to a hospice program. Hospice programs may vary greatly, and you may encounter an individual hospice program that is choosing that to be an individual requirement for their program but it is not a Medicare requirement. A second myth is that a caregiver must be in the home, and this is incorrect. Patients can be admitted to hospice in any level of care, whether it be a long-term care facility, assisted living, independent living, or their own home, and a caregiver is not required to be involved with the patient's care at time of hospice admission. Another myth is that patients must discontinue all aggressive treatments. There are some hospice programs that do admit patients that are still engaged in aggressive treatments, such as blood transfusions, chemotherapy, radiation. As long as an aggressive treatment is related to the symptom management and palliation of the disease, and also part of the patient's plan of care, it could still be considered part of the hospice benefit and patients eligible to continue those treatments while under hospice care. Again, this is subject to the individual hospice as there may be some variations. Another myth is that hospice means the end of the relationship with primary and specialty care physicians. Quite the opposite. When hospice gets involved, it is intimately engaged with primary and specialty care physicians for that ongoing care and comfort of the patient and their disease progression. Another myth of hospice is that a patient cannot be readmitted to the hospital once they are admitted to the service, and this is incorrect. Later in the presentation, we will cover several levels of care, which include hospice care within the hospital. Hospice does allow, though, for a patient to choose that their care continue at home instead of being readmitted to the hospital if that is in line with their goals. Another myth is that hospice may incur a financial burden to the patient or to the family. And quite the opposite is experienced. Medicare and Medicaid cover hospice at 100% and coverage of some items and services that would otherwise not be covered ordinarily under insurance. And the last myth I'd like to review is that hospice is a closed door. Later in the presentation we will talk about uh, the idea of discharge and revocation which both allow a patient the opportunity to enter and leave hospice care for different reasons. Next, I'd like to cover the prognostication tools, better known as local coverage determinations and set forth by the National Hospice and Palliative Care Association. Local coverage determinations, otherwise known as LCDs, are 
a general and disease-specific guidelines for determining terminal status. I emphasize the word guidelines when introducing the LCDs, as it is not a hard and fast rule that every point is met, but rather, than, rather it serves as, as a guide for hospice staff members as well as physicians. The LCDs are useful in developing clinical judgment at admission, and they are used again at recertification. Helpful scales for various illnesses are the Karnofsky and the Palliative Performance Scale, also known as PPS, the Reesberg Fast Dementia Scale, and the New York Heart Association classification. I'd like to go through each individual disease-specific LCD with you so that you can not only review qualifications during this presentation, but also use these slides uh, as an educational tool when encountering future patients and families who might uh, be eligible and interested in hospice services. The first one is heart. Heart disease is the leading cause of death nationwide, but it is the third disease of patients in receiving hospice care. So one that we want to make sure that education is received about the qualifications of a patient with heart disease. CHF must be a New York Heart Association class three or four to be eligible for hospice care. Optimal treatment for coronary artery disease and CHF and no surgical options or the patient declines treatment and is another point of criteria. Optimal treatment for congestive heart failure is considered to be treatment with a beta blocker, an ACE inhibitor, a diuretic, and oxygen, or that the patient has failed those treatments. Dyspnea or angina at rest is also another guideline. Liver disease guideline. Eligibility requirements are a PT-INR over 1.5, and a serum albumin of less than 2.5, and ascites or peritonitis or hepatorenal syndrome or a urine sodium of less than 10, or hepatic encephalopathy or recurrent variceal bleeding. Patient meeting criteria and on the transplant list can be admitted to hospice services and then discharged from hospice if an organ is found and transplant surgery scheduled. Pulmonary criteria include a pulmonary functioning test showing an FEV1 of less than 30% or bed to chair existence or increasing ER visits. Also must have hypoxemia on room air and additional supporting factors include weight loss, refractory shortness of breath, and poorly responsive to treatment. Renal disease criteria include someone not seeking dialysis or stopping dialysis, and either a creatinine clearance of less than 10 or a serum creatinine of 8.0 or greater. Patients who are continuing dialysis and have end-stage renal failure 
may meet for another diagnosis, specifically CHF, which we reviewed earlier, and this is if the congestive heart failure is not caused by the renal failure. Currently, dialysis is not typically one of the aggressive treatments that hospice programs are including within their benefit packages. Eligibility criteria for a stroke is that a patient has a palliative performance scale of less than 40% and weight loss of 10%, serum albumin of less than 2.5, aspiration pneumonia, dysphagia, and the patient declines artificial nutrition. Or patient is still comatose on day three following a stroke, showing abnormal brainstem response, absent verbal response, absent withdrawal to pain, and a serum creatinine of greater than 1.5. The majority of stroke admissions into hospice services come from the ER. Someone presents to the emergency room with a massive CVA, and the physician expects uh, little recovery. In fact, patient is demonstrating symptoms of imminent death, and the patient and family goals, spoken and written, are goals of comfort care. The next LCD I'd like to cover is entitled Decline in Clinical Status. Eligibility guidelines for decline in clinical status are 10% weight loss in the last six months and recurrent infection or pressure ulcers a palliative performance scale of less than 50%, or a very important point of nearly qualifying on two other hospice diagnoses, or what we term as two near misses. Frequently, a patient will present with multiple comorbidities, but not any individual illness that meets the disease-specific criteria. Instead, physicians and hospice programs can look at whether this patient meets the criteria for decline in clinical status. Next, there's an LCD for dementia. A dementia patient needs to be a fast scale of 7A, which means speaks less than six words in a day, incontinent of bowel and bladder, and either a 10% weight loss in the last six months or a serious infection in the last six months. Also, a stage three or stage four decubiti would also be supporting evidence for a patient being admitted to a hospice program with dementia. ALS is the next disease-specific criteria that I would like to review with you. Criteria for ALS eligibility includes impaired breathing, a vital capacity of less than 30%, dyspnea at night, and the need for oxygen at rest. Or we may see the prog progression of the disease through changes such as being able to ambulate to needing a wheelchair, normal speech to barely intelligible, normal to pureed diet, independence in ADLs to dependence in ADLs, and weight loss or we may see the patient present with life-threatening infections, such as recurrent aspiration pneumonia, UTI, recurrent fever, 
stage 3 or stage 4 decubiti. Parkinson's is the next disease-specific eligibility LCD that I'd like to review. A patient with Parkinson's presents for hospice care with continuing weight loss, dehydration or hypovolemia, and the absence of artificial feeding methods. I would like to mention here is that if uh, artificial feeding method is already in place uh, for any of the patients who present with uh, disease-specific criteria, that does not rule them out for hospice care. What we would look for would be the continued uh, progression of the disease and decline of the patient's condition despite the artificial feeding that they are receiving. For Parkinson's, it's one of the first three bullets or we're seeing rapid disease progression or complications in the preceding 12 months as evidenced by at least two of the following. Progression from independent ablation to wheelchair, progression from normal to barely intelligible speech, progression from normal to pureed diet, and progression from independent in most or all ADLs to needing major assistance in all ADLs. A patient presenting with Parkinson's may look a lot like a patient presenting with dementia or general decline in regards to the eligibility requirements for hospice care. And the last LCD I'd like to review with you is probably the easiest for uh, most physicians and hospice programs to review eligibility, and that's the most common disease for hospice admission, and that's cancer. I leave that last for a reason. It's because the other diseases are ones that aren't typically uh, thought of, and so we want to make sure to review those eligibility guidelines before something that is more familiar and more known to us. Eligibility requirements for cancer include that the cancer is metastatic at time of diagnosis or is known to have a highly aggressive tumor. And we're seeing a decline despite the therapy. Patient refuses therapy or there's no chemotherapeutic option available. Next section of the presentation, I'd like to introduce to you the interdisciplinary team provided by hospice care. These members include a medical director, registered nurse, licensed social worker, hospice aide, spiritual counselor, volunteer, therapies such as physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and a registered dietitian, complementary therapies, although not required by the hospice Medicare benefit, frequently offered by hospice programs across the nation, and bereavement counselors. Next, I'll go into each of these individual roles to explain a little bit more in depth. Hospice Medical Director partners with primary care physicians and other healthcare providers to ensure consistent and personalized care. A familiar relationship is one of a primary care physician with a specialty care physician. The hospice medical director would work in this capacity, partnering with the primary care physician to care for their shared patient. 
Hospice Medical Director provides home visits for symptom management and at the time of recertification for disease prognostication. Physician visits by the hospice medical director is a new requirement by the hospice conditions of participation. After a patient has been in hospice services for at least six months, every certification period after, they will receive a visit from the hospice medical director in order to complete the recertification process. Hospice medical director also serves as a medical resource for management of symptoms at end of life. The hospice registered nurse serves several roles while visiting patients and families in their homes under hospice care. Their role is to monitor pain and other symptoms and evaluate the interventions prescribed by the primary care physician. Registered nurse coordinates care and communicates with the physician, serving as the physician's eyes and ears in the home environment. Another responsibility of the registered nurse is to provide education for caregivers and family members on how to provide care and what to expect as someone is dying. A goal of the nurse, and in fact the entire interdisciplinary team, is to create confident caregivers when caring for someone in the home. Hospice nurses are also available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. The next team member is a licensed social worker. Hospice social workers provide supportive counseling to individuals, family, friends, and caregivers. Social workers also facilitate family meetings, connect people to community resources, and provide education and facilitation of advanced care planning conversations. While we certainly expect that advanced care planning conversations started much sooner than the enrollment of hospice care, we do recognize that goals of care and medical wishes can change as the disease progresses and a patient's condition changes throughout end of life. Hospice aides assist with personal cares such as bathing, skin care, and dressing. They also teach caregivers how to provide personal care and they can assist with range of motion exercises under the direction of a nurse and at the recommendation of a physical therapist. Spiritual counselors are also part of the interdisciplinary team of hospice care. They support each patient, family, and caregiver in their own beliefs and practices. They listen without judgment and coach individuals as they explore concerns, struggles, fears, and questions at end of life. Spiritual counselors also play a role of connecting and reconnecting or coordinating communication with their spiritual leader. They also assist with end-of-life decisions and rituals. It's not uncommon for a spiritual counselor to be asked by the patient and family to conduct the funeral service or memorial service once the patient has died. There have also been times where a spiritual counselor has been asked to renew marriage vows or baptize or complete some ritual that is important to the patient and family prior to the end of their life. 
Volunteers are another integral part of the hospice interdisciplinary team, and they serve in a number of different roles. This can also vary from hospice program to hospice program. Familiar roles that they may serve are companionship and respite, transportation and grocery shopping, lighthouse keeping and meal preparation. Specialty services you may also encounter are 11th hour volunteers, those volunteers who sit vigil at the bedside when a patient is in their final hours. Pet care or pet therapy, recognizing the importance of pets in individuals' lives and the need for the continuation of that connection until the patient dies. Massage therapy and haircuts and nail care. Difficult for patients to get out of their home uh, as their disease progresses and so important that some of these services can be brought to them in their home. An alternative therapy that is provided by many hospice programs is music therapy. And I chose music therapy for this presentation because it is, I think, the uh, alternative therapy that is most used by hospice programs in the state of Iowa. Recognizing those of you watching from surrounding states, there may be a different alternative therapy that hospice programs are using. Uh, and those could be up to and including massage therapists, acupuncturists, and of the like. Music therapists use music to work towards a non-musical goal. For example, if a patient is having a pain crisis or anxiety or suffering from depression, a music therapist will use music to intervene with that symptom. They also assist patients, families, and caregivers to express and explore thoughts and feelings experienced at end of life. They create an environment of sharing and experiencing memorable moments as a family unit at a very difficult time in people's lives. The bereavement counselor is another important part of the interdisciplinary team, sometimes entering care prior to death but many times entering care once the patient has died. The bereavement counselor provides one-on-one -on -one and group counseling for bereaved individuals of all ages. They work to normalize the grief process and assess for complicated grief. They provide education through written literature, and they recognize and honor difficult dates, anniversaries, birthdays, and holidays. The Medicare hospice benefit requires hospice programs to provide bereavement care for up to 13 months following the death of a patient. The services are available to the entire family unit, friends, and community caregivers that may have been involved in the patient's care. Also important to note, hospice considers the primary care physician the patient, the family, and other care partners such as nursing home and assisted living staff and other in-home service agencies and hospital staff to also be a part of the interdisciplinary team and part of the comprehensive and well-coordinated care that hospice provides. Hospice services are set up in benefit periods. 
Medicare, Medicaid, and most commercial payers follow the Medicare Hospice Benefit, which provides an initial 90-day period, followed by a subsequent 90-day period, and then an unlimited number of 60-day benefit periods when the patient is continued to be certified as terminally ill by the hospice medical director. As I mentioned earlier in the presentation, medical directors are now required to make in-home visits once the patient meets that six-month mark of hospice services, and the visits occur every 60 days uh, during those subsequent benefit periods in order to certify the ongoing eligibility of hospice care. Recertification is based on the hospice medical director's clinical judgment of information that supports a prognosis of six months or less. The medical director is able to make this clinical judgment based on a number of factors. The first being the interdisciplinary's assessment of the patient's current condition using quantifiable comparisons to previous data. Also input from the primary care physician, family, and other care providers are an integral part of the recertification process. It's also the expectation that there is the utilization of the appropriate disease-specific guidelines, or the LCDs, that we reviewed earlier. Some patients may end up being discharged from hospice care. Reasons for hospice discharge would include a patient moving out of a service area, Hospice programs are licensed by county, and if a patient moves out of their service area, a referral would be made to a hospice program serving that area. A patient may also be discharged if the expected prognosis appears to be greater than six months or less, as determined by the hospice medical director. National statistics say that over 10% of hospice discharges are now a live discharge or a graduation of hospice care because the patient's condition has stabilized or plateaued. And the last reason for discharge would be one of cause. If a patient's behavior or situation is such that care cannot be safely provided, even though all efforts have been made to resolve the situation, a hospice program does reserve the right to discharge a patient uh, because they are not able to safely provide care. This discharge, of course, has to be with the notification to the physician and involvement of the patient and family. A patient or substitute decision maker may also elect to revoke hospice services. An individual or their substitute decision maker may revoke the individual's election of hospice care at any time. Revocation sometimes occurs in hospice care when a patient's condition may have uh, improved slightly and an aggressive treatment is available to them once again and they want to pursue more uh, curative treatments or life-sustaining treatments. Uh, than initially thought when they came into the hospice program. We also see some individuals revoke if they wish to enter skilled care at a long-term care facility, and it's for the same diagnosis as their hospice care is being given. 
To revoke, an individual or substitute decision maker must sign and date a revocation statement with the hospice program. An individual, even though revoking, may re-elect hospice care at any time if they are still deemed eligible for the services. Hospice provides four levels of care. Routine home care, inpatient respite care, general inpatient care, and continuous home care. And we'll review each of these four levels. Routine home care is the most widely used level of care. Under routine home care, hospice care is provided in the patient's place of residence, which could include their private home, an assisted living facility, or a skilled nursing facility. All interdisciplinary team members, as reviewed earlier, are available for intermittent visits to the patient and family under this level of care. The next level of care is respite. Respite care is a five-day stay at a contracted hospital or long-term care facility. Respite care is designed to provide an in-home caregiver a break due to burnout, illness, or even a planned vacation. The goal of respite care is upon entering the contracted hospital or long-term care facility, the goal must be to return home at the end of the five days. Again, no crystal ball in hand. There are certainly circumstances when a caregiver may be burned out or overwhelmed or stressed. A respite stay is provided and during that respite stay, the patient and family agree that they are in need of a higher level of care, and so occasionally discharge from respite can be to a long-term care facility. But that, according to Medicare, should not be the intent when entering respite care. Respite can be repeated as necessary throughout their hospice care, but it cannot be the caregiving plan. Yes, we have had caregivers and patients who ask, well, can I go into respite care Monday through Friday, home on the weekends, and back on Monday? And Medicare says no. During respite care, whether it be at a contracted hospital or long-term care facility, the hospice team members remain involved and the coordinators of the care. The third level of care I'd like to review is general inpatient care, or also known by some as symptom management. General inpatient care is provided at uh, typically a contracted hospital. It can also be provided at a contracted long-term care facility if the care facility provides RNs on the floor actually engaged in patient care 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Most commonly though, you'll find general inpatient care provided in the hospital setting. General inpatient care is indicated for pain or other acute or chronic symptom management that cannot be managed in other settings. It's intended to be short-term, typically not longer than a week. This level of care requires daily documentation, which must reflect the need for this level of care, what symptoms are occurring, what interventions are being provided, and changes in condition. Indicators for general inpatient care include 
complicated technical interventions that cannot be completed in another environment, such as the home or even a long-term care facility. Sometimes we will see patients go in for IV antibiotics or simply the implementation of a new intravenous route of a medication. While these adjustments are being made, the need for uh, physician involvement and skilled nursing oversight is necessary. Another indicator is symptom management, psychosocial monitoring. Occasionally we will have uh, extreme changes in uh, behaviors uh, as someone's disease is progressing or they are reaching end of life. And also another indicator for general inpatient care is imminent death. Imminent death is defined as the last two or three days of life. Of course, again, no crystal ball in hand, but when we are seeing signs that the patient is uh, very close to death, we are seeing uh, decreased to no input or output. We are seeing limited to no response, uh, significant change in vital signs and modeling. The last level of care I'd like to review is continuous home care. Continuous home care is provided during a time of symptom management crisis when the patient's goal is to remain at home. It's also deemed short-term care because it's based on the symptom management and the need for nursing oversight. Continuous home care is when a minimum of eight hours of care is provided in a 24-hour period, but not necessarily continuous eight hours. Indicators for continuous care, much like general inpatient care, is when we have uncontrolled symptoms, imminent death with symptom issues, such as a patient is needing uh, medication adjustments uh, during the imminent dying process for better control of symptoms. Severe pain, severe respiratory distress, seizures, intractable nausea and vomiting, bleeding, or severe agitation or confused state. Really the major difference between continuous care and general inpatient care solely depends on the goals of the patient and family. Where do they want the care to be provided, in an inpatient setting or in their own home? Next, I'd like to cover hospice care in nursing homes. Care, availability, and coverage of hospice is the same in a care center as it is in a patient's home. Services provided supplement and complement what the patient and family are already receiving from the care center staff. Coordinated care of a hospice patient in a nursing home is achieved through discipline-specific communication, good documentation of the hospice program in the nursing home, and coordinated care planning. When a patient is admitted to hospice care in a nursing home, it is extremely advantageous for hospice team members to begin sitting at the table during care conferences so they can be involved in the establishment and the changes of the plan of care for the patient. 
Many times this also provides an opportunity for open communication among care center staff, hospice programs, and the family. Benefits to hospice care for nursing home residents include improved pain management, increased involvement of psychosocial disciplines and alternative therapies that may not be available in the care center without the involvement of hospice. Greater family satisfaction with end-of-life care, fewer hospitalizations, and lower costs, at least in the last month of life. Nursing home residents who are on hospice care are also less likely to receive invasive treatments. In summary of this presentation on hospice care, I would encourage you to think about it, talk about it with your patients, and recommend it. It's never too soon to call. End-of-life care may be difficult to discuss, but it's best to learn about the options and for patients and family members to share their wishes long before it becomes a concern. Thank you so much for allowing me to share the benefits of hospice care with you today.